Well, hey there, and welcome to episode number 105 of Groove, the No Trouble podcast, which you can always find at notrouble.com. My name is Mitch Joel. Let's get on with the show. So who are you and what do you do? Well, hello. My name is Freak Bass and I am predominantly a bass player and I'm a music producer, beat creator, little jack of all funk, I guess you could say. Yes. And I appreciate you doing this. You just ran into Corey from No Treble and I was texting Corey saying, who are we going to have on the show? And he's like, Freak Bass is here. <laughs> oh, that's great. It was so great to meet Corey in person because, you know, we've talked through email and socials for years and years. And I was down getting some coffee in the morning, you know, and we were like, wait a minute, what, what? You know, so it was it was really, really special. And where were you guys? You were at a bass camp, correct? Yes. Gerald Beasley's Bass Boot Camp, which is just for any bass player out there, I cannot recommend it enough. It's just uh, Gerald and the whole staff there, Lee, everybody, Roxanne, Gerald's wife. I mean, they just have everything just so dialed in. Probably, I'd say over half the campers there, bass players, campers are return people that, you know, you see a lot of the same faces just because it's such an inspiring experience. And I believe it. this was their 21st year. I started doing it. I think this is my fourth or fifth I've done. And, and I started, I think it was about 2015, 2016 was probably my first. So and my last one, I wasn't last last year's, but I was there two years ago, which was right kind of at the tail end of the pandemic. So it was a little, everybody was like, you know, of course, everybody was all masked up and everybody was like a little, ooh, you know, so this was really nice because um, obviously, you know, we're not totally out of the weeds with everything, but definitely the relaxation factor was a lot, lot better this time. Talk to me a little bit about what happens at a base camp. And the reason I'm asking this is I studied the electric base post-secondary. Uh-huh. Then decided to go into the media side of things, and I tinker with it here and there, but my real passion is speaking to other bass players. I just love the instrument, and when I meet players that I love, I'm always curious about how every article is always about the gear they use and not the artist and the music. So that was the reason we created this podcast, but whenever I would see things like a bass camp, I got intimidated as a player. I was always like, uh, am I going to just sit there and be the guy who sucks? What is the experience like for people? Well. Gerald, specifically, it's a very, very almost family environment there. And there are, I mean, just to give you an idea. So they have, the way he does it is they have it broken down into, I think it's four different classes. There's beginners, intermediate, advanced intermediate, and then advanced. When I say beginners, there were a few students there that literally picked up a base on the way to the camp. I'm not talking about like, I'm not talking about like a month beginner. I'm talking about like that day beginners, you know, not even sure how to physically hold the instrument really. So it is literally all over the map in terms of, uh, in terms of levels. And in terms of judgment, that is out the window too. I mean, I think, I mean, you probably know this being around enough bass players. I think just our, the bass player community, I think just in general is a very kind of non-judgmental and welcoming community. And I think a lot of that, I've always wondered that. And I think a lot of it has to do with I think even when you're a kid, usually bass is one of the instruments that you choose to play. Unlike parents say, hey, you need to play piano or you got to play guitar, you know, or, or sing or whatever the case may be, where generally I know with my students, I teach guitar as well on top of bass. And just even at that like younger age, the personality difference is pretty radical because it's, again, usually the bass players are the ones that have taken their own incentive 
to go and play the instrument. And I think right from that, moving on to becoming an adult and moving forward, that is such a uh, huge part of it. So to answer, I know I'm answering a very long answer to a short question, but the the environment there is very, very welcoming. It's not judgmental at all. People like at the end of his camp, he does a thing where he has everybody come up with a drummer and play for about a minute. Like doesn't matter again, if you just started a few days ago or you've been playing for years and years and everybody's geeking on everybody, all the players, everybody stays till the very end. And it's, you know, it's a long, it's a lot of people. So it's, it ends up being a long, long thing and everybody's staying there and just supporting each other so highly recommended and it's uh super as as a teacher it's just like you know you feel like you're you're welling up and tearing up all the time just because you're just so inspired all the time and do you find that situations like that as a player you can really accelerate whether you're beginner intermediate or advanced that just being in the environment of all these players it is part of it that it's just inspiring oh for sure definitely and not only just the teaching part and seeing their eyes light up and them learning stuff, but even like throughout the camp talking to, you know, people, obviously you're there and people are coming up to you and stopping you and asking you questions and talking to you about their experience and you're telling them about your experiences. Yeah, just the whole entire thing. It's a really, really incredible experience. It really is. If you're a bass player, again, I can't recommend it enough. You're on this incredible journey and I think we'd be remiss if we didn't really go back in time because in getting ready for this conversation, one of the things I do love is the origin story. I'm curious about when you first saw the electric bass and was that the moment when you started playing it or did you see it and play it later? When did this instrument magically come into your life? And it really was magic too. So I started off as more of a drummer in school band, played kit and did that, you know, play that started dabbling in guitar a little bit, but it was kind of a twofold thing. There were two things that happened really that like in terms of my big light bulb, Superman finding the crystal out in his shed, making the Fortress of Solitude moments. One was, I remember being, shoot, I was probably, you know, I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio, and, you know, funk is a hotbed in this part of the country, Cincinnati, Dayton. And one of the bands from Dayton, Ohio is Zap. And so you would always hear that. I mean, you hear it nationally, of course, but you really hear it around in this area quite a bit. And I was a little kid at the hardware store with my father. And I just remember this guy walking by the store. I didn't even, I, didn't even, I mean, I knew what music was, of course, but I didn't like, you know, wasn't, didn't even know what the whole vibe with music was yet. And he was on a boombox was playing more bounce to the ounce. And I just remember hearing those tones and I wasn't even really thinking of it as a musical thing. I was just like, what are those? Like, what is that? Like, what's that coming at me? And it was like, it really affected me. So years later, probably, and I think I was in fifth grade. There's a music college in Ohio called Oberlin Music College, which is northern Ohio. It's kind of like a private music college. And their jazz band, they were kind of like touring amongst schools, I'm assuming, within the state. And again, I'm from Cincinnati, Ohio. And they just coincidentally set me literally right in front of the bass player. And I even remember, I didn't, again, I didn't know bass brands or anything then, but I still remember like it was yesterday. It was a Gibson EBO bass, which I found out later. I just remember looking like, that's like the guitar player ACDC plays, but it's a bass. And I remember like thinking that. But when I was that close to it, just a couple feet away, and those tones that I'd heard years earlier with the zap thing, and seeing it and the physicality of it and just the sound, but also just the strings being so thick and just like everything about it, it was literally, it was mesmerizing to me. And I was like, I knew that was the instrument I had to do. You hear so many stories about bass players that, kind of become the bass player in the band by default because there's too many guitar players like well i guess i'll just play bass you know totally. but mine was definitely a conscious like i want to play bass i want to be a bass player for sure 
How really crazy cool too, because usually in that scenario, it's a double bass. It's not you're right. an electric bass in that scenario. Very true. And you're right. I never even thought about that, but it is true, especially in a jet, especially like a school like Oberlin. Yeah. So yeah, it's interesting. I don't remember, of course, exactly what he looked like, but I just remember him look like, and I'm sure 90% of what was having the bass around his neck, but I was like, that guy is like the coolest looking guy ever, you know? So then what happens? You go home, you go, mom and dad, I have something that, like, when do you actually get your hands on a four string? So, yeah. And I had at that point, well, if not long after that point, if I didn't already, I think I started playing guitar around fifth or sixth grade. So I had an electric. So I took a couple of strings off my electric and tried to make it. And then it was a constant of getting mom and dad, like, you know, like, you don't understand. I have to play bit like I, you know, and they're like, oh, you know, play guitar. And my dad played a little guitar and he's like, just play guitar for a while longer. You know, that'll, that'll be better for you, for you and blah, blah, blah. So I guess it was in seventh grade. My folks got me a Fender Music Master bass. Yeah. And Respectable. And, uh, oh, yeah. And I'm, and by the way, here's a little pro tip, by the way, to all you bass players out there, never, ever get rid of your first bass. I did. Yeah. And I, and like, I would give anything to have that Music Master back. I was selling one thing to get the next thing type thing at that age. But I so wish I still, because I remember what the case smelled like when you opened it up, like everything about it. So I got that on a PV amp and uh, my life was changed. And literally probably a month or so later in Cincinnati, there's a radio station here called WEBN and they used to have this thing called the WEBN Classified. It was almost kind of like a, like an audio version of almost like eBay or something like that. But then they would also have like job opportunity stuff. And they had this one that came on and it was like, 12 year old guitar player looking for other musicians to play with and i ended up calling this guy up and i literally had my bass for a couple of weeks i mean i really didn't know what i was doing at that point but of course i was like oh yeah yeah i've been playing for a long you know a long time so he had me out he had been playing for a while and it was a blues band he's putting together so i went to this blues band rehearsal with a few guys and i was basically lost and luckily they Stuck it out with me, gave me another week. And the good thing was, is after that rehearsal, I went home and I practiced like, I'd, I was like, I'm coming to that next rehearsal and that ain't going to happen again. I'm not going to put myself in that position. So it forced me very quickly to figure out what the heck I was doing. And then, yeah, and then that little relationship right there ended up leading to a keyboard player who we'll probably get into later, who ended up being one of my best friends. His name's Atal Shore. He's the guy that co-wrote the song smooth by santana and won a grammy amazing career but he produced a bunch of my stuff even recently and just from that little call from a you know 12 year old kid that didn't really know how to play bass yet yeah did you find that when you started playing it more seriously that you heard the bass and music differently or did you recognize or acknowledge that you had actually been hearing it for a while and that's probably what attracted you to it do you ever think back of just the music side of it and i find that when i speak to bass players there's something fundamental in how they hear that instrument in music that drives their passion. Yes, for sure. I was talking about the Zap thing with the More Bounce City Ounce situation. I mean, that was, I was like, oh, this is the thing that's making those sounds, you know, and I started figuring it out. And so it was a, it was kind of a, obviously a process too, because like when I was learning bass lines, sometimes I would kind of more learn the melody and then I would learn obviously the bass line itself. And then from there, and, but yeah, for sure. The, I mean, another big turning point for me in terms of like, so I started like all bass players, you know, a year or two later, started getting obsessed with Jocko. thought I was going to be the next Jocko Pistorius and then got into Rush and Getty Lee and a lot of prog rock and all that kind of stuff. So in eighth grade, between summer of eighth grade, between eighth and ninth grade, I worked at a little mom and pop music store. They let me come in there a few hours a day to work off to pay for a bass. 
And this gentleman came in one day and he sat down and he started thumping and plucking on a bass in front of me. And I'd never seen that before. And it was like right in front. I was like, what are you doing? That's like the coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. And so he started coming to, not giving me lessons, but he would just, he, as a customer, he would come in the store and sit down with me and I would try to mimic what he was doing, you know, at the music store. So there were hours of the day where someone wouldn't come in. So we'd just be sitting there and I kept getting a little bit better at it here and there. And once I kind of got to a point, I remember him coming in one day and I'll never forget this story. I talked about this over the weekend over the base boot camp is that he's like, and what you need to do now is go out and buy as many Cameo CDs as you can. And uh, there's a band called Cameo. Go check it out. And obviously, we all know Cameo, but it's like the thing, especially for as your ears are developing and you're learning as a player, the bass, there's no doubt what the bass is on that mix. I mean, they have it cranked in the mix. And of course, it's also very repetitive, you know. So once you learn the line, you can just worry about grooving, whatever the technique is. So once I started getting into the Cameo stuff, again, that was another big game changer moment for me. And I started learning all those cameo baselines that we're also familiar with and that was going to help me develop my style into what it was so you start playing this instrument grade seven let's call it even though you're romanticizing about it prior to that yeah what is happening in the music scene for you like what is the music you're listening to what type of bands and music were just attractive to you or was there that whole peer pressure friends thing? Yeah. Well, you know, like a lot of my friends, you know, when I was a kid, like, you know, late junior high, high school, et cetera, like all of that area where we're like, you know, into Green Day and Nirvana and some different like more heavier kind of metal bands type stuff like Metallica and stuff like that. And I started getting obsessed with Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg. And I'm sure it was by way of the funk, you know, because yeah. obviously Dre was sampling all that stuff. And um, so... You know, I became like in Public Enemy and I so like all that early, you know, late 80s, early 90s hip hop, I just started just becoming obsessed with and I would play the chronic and doggy style on bass just nonstop. And then I got to the point where I was like, not just learning the lines, but trying to get, I mean, I literally must have played doggy style. I mean, like thousands of times because I wanted to get the bass to sound exactly like it sounded like almost if I was in on the session. Obviously, you know, some of those songs like, you know, Marcus Miller's on one of those tracks yeah. by default because of the Hobo Globo trip and that, that they ended up sampling for Gin and Juice, I think was a song for that. Yeah. And that was another big, big point for me in terms of that kind of stuff I was listening to. So, I mean, I still like, you know, all those bands too, Nirvana, Green Day and all that kind of stuff and Metallica and stuff like that. But I was definitely more of a, a hip hop kid for sure. At that same time as when I, as well as playing bass, I started getting into like drum machines and all that kind of, because then that's where my kind of production stuff, almost, I mean, it wasn't that long after I started playing bass a few years that I started getting into drum machines and producing and, you know, getting, I didn't know what I was doing really, but I was starting to getting into that beat creation at that point too as well. I think it's a magical time that you're talking about that I think we'll look back on and maybe it's too recent of history to talk about it being the classics, but I was a metal guy without a doubt. Yeah, But at that time, it was this massive intersection of urban as well. You had mm. Biohazard matching up with Wu-Tang Glan. You had things like Judgment Night, the soundtrack, which was way more popular and cooler than the movie was. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And that hybrid of this street, I think, is a moment in time that probably led to grunge, but a lot of people don't realize, I think, how formative it was in bringing people together, even though the aggression of that music from two very different types of neighborhoods was almost cool. Like before yeah. that, if you liked hip hop and rap, you weren't a metal guy. 
Right, right. At that moment in time, like helmet and bands like that really brought it together. Well, and the anthrax public enemy thing. Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, yeah bring them the noise. Yeah, yeah that, that, that was a game changer. And, you know, and if you go a few years older than that, the, obviously the first little dabble in that was obviously the Aerosmith run DMC thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What an amazing time. It's so cool when I think about which albums were really hitting notes with me at that point. Yeah. I'm curious about when you decided okay, I do love this, but now this is going to be a job. This is going to be my profession. It's going to be my career. We'll get into the visuals and the things that you do because you're so much more than just playing music. But at what point were you really serious about it? What were the reactions of friends and family around you? Was it very clear to you? Like, this is it. I am Freak Bass. Move on. Yeah. I mean, I hadn't gotten the name yet, Freak Bass, because Bootsy's the one that gave me that name, which we'll talk about in a little bit, probably. But the... um. But yeah, I pretty much from, it wasn't like the second I started playing music, I knew this was going to be something I was going to be doing forever. I started playing gigs pretty quickly too. I started, I was, wasn't long. They were tiny little gigs here and there, but there's even a, there's a club here in Cincinnati called Bogarts, which is kind of like a, it's like the mid 12, 1300 seater kind of club. It's still kind of like a hipster indoor club. And like touring bands that would play there. So we got to the band I was in. We were called, this is so, so cheesy. I can't believe I'm talking about this, but it was a band that was called Fountain of Youth. And we were basically, we did some other songs, but essentially like a rush tribute band of kids. There were three of us. The guitar player ended up being a really accomplished guitar classical teacher too. His name's Paul, but we just did a bunch of rush stuff and they had us open up for a big band because we were kids. So it was kind of like a novelty thing. And we even did La Vila Strongiato, I would say. Not YYZ, but La Vila. So we were hardcore. And so when I first got the taste of that, getting on stage, doing that, being in front of people like that, and just, you know, the adrenaline and doing it, you know, I was like, okay, this is, there's nothing else I want to do in my life. This is what I'm going to do. And then I just started touring pretty quick. I I was, I studied, I was going to be a, actually, I studied upright for many years. I went to different camps. I was studying with a guy from the Cincinnati Symphony. I was going to go to a Boston music, not Berkeley, another Boston music school. And that was my whole thing. I was going to be a classical bassist. And then um, I ended up right after high school with the guy I was talking about earlier, a tall keyboard player that ended up writing the smooth song, him and another guitar player. His brother lived in LA. We went out to LA to record it summer after high school. And then we started touring. And the next thing I knew, I was just touring. And that was it. That was my, my career path that changed, you know. So we mentioned Bootsy. We'll get to Bootsy, but we'll get to Bootsy through a tall, I think. Is that correct? No, no, Bootsy actually, though, this is kind of wild and kind of ties into even to today where we're at. The way I met Bootsy, so there's a singer, his name's Mudbone Cooper, and Gary Mudbone Cooper, all the big P-Funk hits and all the um, Bootsy's Rubber Band hits, like the vocals you hear on all those, besides obviously Bootsy or George, is Mudbone. And Mudbone was also in another band. He did a pop side project called Sly Fox, which their big hit was called Let's Go All Away. It was a big 80s hit. Yeah. Actually, actually had a big resurgence. They used it for Iron Man 3. So it was like another little kind of resurgence for that. So he's from Cincinnati. He's originally from Baltimore, but he lived in Cincinnati, Mudbound, and wanted to put together another, like he was thinking about putting Sly Fox back together. And I was just starting to kind of make my name around town a little bit as a bass player. And he had heard about me and he had me come over and start doing some, I didn't know anything about the P-Funk stuff, any of that stuff. It was just the Sly Fox. I knew that song, Let's Go All Away. And so I started tracking in the studio with him and I would go over his place and he would just start putting these videos on. And I was like, and I would like look at him and I'd look at him and it was like Bootsy from like 
Houston, Texas from 76 or something. I'm like, that's you on there. And he's like, oh yeah, I also do do this thing. And then, so he started kind of schooling me in the world of the funk. So I started learning that whole stuff. Like he kind of always, like Muddy always liked to try to keep his pop world and his funk were almost like there were two different, I mean, they were are two different genres, but almost like two different, almost personalities, personas and everything. So there's a label out of Japan called P-Vine Records, which is still around today. It's a great label. And they were doing, they're basically funk and soul, and they do a lot of hip hop now too as well. But they were doing a Jimi Hendrix tribute album, not cover songs, but songs written about Jimi Hendrix. They're using different funk artists. I think like some of the guys from Raccoon and Fire were doing a track, Ohio Players. And Mudbone was doing a track with Michael Hampton, who most people in the funk world know him as Kid Funkadelic from P-Funk. They were doing a track together. Michael's an amazing guitar player. Kind of took Eddie Hazel's place after Eddie passed. And so they asked me if I want to, like, Mudbone's like, hey, man, you, were, you know, we're doing a demo for the song. I think it's going to be on P-Vine Records. Do you want to play bass on it? I was like, yeah, of course, you know. And I was like, well, what are we doing? He's like, oh, well, we're going to do it at Bootsy's place. He's going to produce and engineer it. And I was just off the cuff. And I was like, wait, what? Hold on. We're going where and doing what? So that's where we did it. And that's when I met Bootsy. So he brought me out to his studio. And it's funny because Bootsy answered the door. He had this big, like, kind of like barn looking thing where he recorded. And he looked like, I mean, Bootsy is tall, but I mean, to me, he looked then when he opened that door, he looked like he was 30 feet tall, like Godzilla and a huge grin on his face. Super, super inviting. Brought me into the studio. He was engineering even the board too, as well. And we laid down the track and it was, everything was, I mean, it, it was perfect, perfect day. But I, as the studio session was going, I was like, I kept seeing all his effects around. And I, first off, he also had me plugged through his whole rig. So I was going through like massive, you know, six eighteens and 15. And I mean, you just like do that on the bass. I was like, you know, so it was super easy to track because it was so big sounding. But I was plugging through all his effects. He's, and of course, he probably just met me. He probably didn't even, wasn't able to remember my name yet. And he just started, he's like, man, you got that freaky bass thing going. You're like over there freaking all the effects. And as the day went on, freaky bass thing became freak and then freak bass. And then it, people in his studio just started referring to me as the day went on just as freak bass. And then that's how the name got born there in the studio working with him that day. It's one thing to come up with a name and build a brand around it. It's another when it's, got that type of mythology to it. It's so cool. It's such a fun story. Oh, well, thank you. And, and you know, and then a couple of weeks later after we'd done that session, Bootsy got back in touch with me and said, hey, why don't you know, come over here to the studio and we'll do some stuff. So I started going over his studio and I'd spent hours and hours in his studio, like six, seven, eight hours in his studio. Not, you know, of course I was like, oh, I'm going to learn all this really cool bass stuff. And, you know, there's a little, there's some of that for sure. But a lot of it was more about engineering, like I learned how to use my Kai MPC, which is like a sampling drum machine. It's like what Dre uses all this stuff. It's like a production center. Bootsy showed me how to use that, how to do sampling better, how to do a studio record versus a live record, surviving in the music. I mean, he would just talk to me for hours and hours about his experiences dealing with managers and booking agents and, you know, it was like going to school basically is what it was. And it was life-changing for me because it, it taught me how to work in a studio even more than I already knew and how to record records and how to do sampling and, and just, I mean, it was just incredible. And then of course, all the business side of stuff, and it really set my kind of career off on a, you know, you know, hopefully places I might've gotten to on my own, but it was definitely let me see the pathway a little bit easier for sure. Yeah. And did you ever speak specifically about the bass or, or play bass together or things like we that? Would, we would. Yeah, for sure. Like, and you know, a lot of it was just had to do with like, okay, when you're doing a studio album, like whether it be like pop or funk or hip hop or whatever, 
maybe lean more this way. And then when you're doing a live album, more lean this way, you know, type thing. So in other words, don't get like crazy, crazy busy on something, you know, think about it more in terms of the song and then just like lay back in this too. And which, by the way, going back to the first story, when I met Bootsy, I think that's one of the big reasons why he ended up getting, you know, I mean, you'd always have to talk to him to, to know for sure. But I think part of it was, I'm assuming when a lot of bass players get around him, they just want to go chop heavy and show how great their chops are and just start going crazy. When I played and I plugged through all his stuff, the line was something like, and that's literally all I played. I didn't put, didn't try to fill up all the gaps with all my spaces. I was just leaning in the pocket and that's all I played. And I think like, I mean, I could see him back of the board, you know, geeking out as he was recording me. And I think that was part of it that I wasn't, you know, I wasn't trying to sit here and show. I was just thinking about pocket. And I think that was part of the reason why he might have dug where I was coming from. Tell me the story about Atal. And is there a connection between him and Bootsy or is there no connection? Not really. I mean, Tall's met Bootsy for sure and Bernie too well. Bernie Worrell is another person who was a big influence on my life too as well. And um, that Bootsy and Muddy hooked me up with. We were playing in a band. You know, we played in bands since we were kids, kid kids, like 12, 13 years old. And then into high school. And then we started playing around Cincinnati and started getting, we had a band and we were kind of getting to be the big thing, which is partially how Mudbone found out about me being a bass player. But he ended up moving to New York because, I mean, he's, his whole family, his whole family, it's ridiculous. His dad was the head of Jewish liturgical music here in Cincinnati at Hebrew Union College. And, you know, very in, the, in that community, you know, very, very well known. His mom was a dancer. His sister sang lead in Carmen in Zurich, Switzerland. His brother was a studio engineer. I mean, the whole, fa- it's re- the whole family is ridiculous to the talent level, which was nice because I was always go over there as a kid. And like, you know, his dad would show me little things and stuff like that that I might not have normally gotten. But he moved to New York because he wanted to kind of, obviously, it's New York. And he was such an incredible songwriter as well as being just a really great player that he wanted to go in that. And Atal ended up getting into a band that probably a lot of your listeners might know, a band called The Groove Collective. He was a keyboard player in that band, you know, and did, you know, late two, late 90s or late 2000s were, were the thing in New York City. And uh, bass player Jonathan Marin, who's incredible bassist that a lot of people probably know that listen to the show. Jonathan's a great guy too as well. But yeah, so he, you know, then started getting known more. Like I think he did a song, a couple of songs for Jewel and he co-wrote the Maxwell album, Maxwell's debut album. Atal. Great album. Yeah, Ascension Like It's All, I think. If he wasn't the main, I mean, he's definitely the main songwriter. I don't, he might have co-wrote it with Maxwell. That's where he started putting his name on the map as a songwriter. So his manager, I guess at the time said, Hey, they're doing this, um, album for Santana. Do you want to submit a song? So first off, he had no idea he was going to make the album. Then he had no idea it was going to obviously be the single. And of course had no idea that it was going to be this, you know, this out, the song that's probably going, we're going to be hearing 40, 50 years from now. But it's funny because when he told me about it, the video was out a few weeks ago, a few weeks later, obviously him and Rob Thomas wrote it together for Matchbox 20. But as soon as I tur- like turned the TV on and I heard the song, I was like, that's a tall song. I can tell because oh, wow. he's got a very distinctive writing style. Even when we played in bands together, it's like, that sounds like one of our old songs, you know, in terms of like chord changes and stuff like that. And of course it was. And of course his career just went into the stratosphere and, you know, it's like, so weird, like turning on the Grammys and there he is walking up, getting song of the record of the year, you know, I mean, the biggest reward there is, you know, I'm like, what, how how did this happen? Yeah. So it was wonderful. And he's the most humble, he's super humble guy. And he lived the rock star life there for a few years too as well. But now a lot of times he'll go out and, um, 
go out and do like these big panel discussions with other great songwriters, you know, out there too in the marketplace. And he's moved on to be a producer and many other things. So it's great to see where he went with his career. How do you think about genres of music and where you pull your influence from? We talked about your youth. We talked about how you got to be where you are. But now when I hear the things you're doing, it's so different and so out there. And there's funk, there's jazz, there's rock. You're pulling pieces from a whole bunch of things. But what's happening inside of you when you're thinking about writing a line or creating a song? You know, it's funny because I used to... You know, when you're growing up and you always have managers and stuff around you, you're like, you got to do this one thing and you got to be like, sound like this and blah, blah, blah. Another nice little lesson I think I learned from Bootsy is that, you know, no matter how I play bass, and I don't mean this in like trying to like pump myself up or say anything great, it's going to sound like me, of course, but it's going to have like a funky element to it, whether I'm playing country or electronica or whatever the type of music is. So I kind of got past, you know, and I used to like say, oh, I have to write like this so it sounds like this within this genre. I don't, I don't want to stray from that too long so I don't confuse the listener. And then I got to the point where I was like, you know what? It's like, it's going to sound kind of like me no matter what style of music I do. And, um, and just kind of leaned into that. As much as I love, you know, Bootsy and Larry Graham, I love Paul McCartney and Tom York from Radiohead and Daft Punk and, you know, just as much as a songwriter and a producer, I didn't want to kind of just you know, pigeonhole myself in that one little thing. So I was like, I'm just going to kind of do all these styles of music. And, um, you know, I use a, obviously a lot of pedals and stuff like that too, as well. So it's like, I, I'm like, can figure out ways to manipulate my sound to fit within these different genres. A big turning point for me too, as a player and kind of stretching outside my boundaries. About 10 years ago, I had the side project band and we still play every once in a while, maybe two or three shows a year. It's a band called Headtronics and it's myself. DJ, Lo the original band was myself, DJ Logic, and Steve Mullitz from this band called Particle, which was like a big kind of Jamtronica band. Steve wasn't always able to do the gigs, so we actually did a big run where Bernie Worrell kind of joined us for, for a whole run too as well. But the gigs were, they, you know, hour and a half, two hour long shows, whether they're festival gigs or club gigs, and 100% improvisation. So Logic would just start doing a beat, and I would be making a bass line, and Bernie or Steve or whoever was playing with us at the time, Richard Fortis from Guns N' Roses, did a few shows with us. We would just go for it. And the more and more I did that, the first gig was pretty. I was like, oh, how are we going to do this? And then it just became a natural thing. And that, so that's kind of been, that was really helped for me in terms of creating bass lines quickly with whatever genre and beat or groove. That was a really big turning point for me, too, as, as a musician. Talk a bit about the bump assembly. Yes. Well, the Bump Assembly is kind of, you know, that's my band, Freak Bass and the Bump Assembly. And there was always, you know, we wanted to, we, there was always a little confusion about like, is the band Freak Bass? Are you Freak Bass? You know, what, you know, how does this work? When the original Bump Assembly was myself, Bam, who is, uh, he's actually on my arm right here, my original drummer. Um, he, uh, on, the reason he's on my arm, he uh, unfortunately a few years ago passed away in a car accident when we got back on the road. But we were like on top of musician partners. He was also one of my best, best friends, if not my best friend. And, but a super crazy talented guy. But he actually started off, he was in like the lit, like the 2013, 14 version of Bootsy's band when Bootsy was touring. And I think they were called the Funk Unity Band at that point. So we met through that. And then we started playing in a blues band together. Then we ended up joining, doing the, the Bump Assembly. 
So that was kind of the first version of the bump assembly. And then we had Razor Sharp, Razor, who was Bootsy's keyboard, original keyboard player, started playing with us. So that was it. And that, that uh, when Bam uh, passed, uh, Rico Lewis, who was the uh, toured for 15 years with George Clinton in Parliament, Funkadelic, he was kind of in the, the newer version of that band, started touring with us. We went out originally as a trio. Then we started having, um, um, working with the tall, we were working on my next album and uh, we were working on this song called Stepping Out of Line. And he's like, you know, we should get some female vocals on that. And I was like, well, you know, I know this lady named Sammy Garrett who tours in this band called Turquoise. And uh, we've gotten to be kind of friends. I was like, we should get Sammy on it. And then Sammy hit it off really well with us. And then Sammy and I started writing a little bit together. And then she started recording on a lot of my stuff. So then she started touring with me all the time. And then Sammy tours with Turquoise quite a bit. So she wasn't able to make all the shows. So there's a lady here in Cincinnati, who incredible singer named Riley Commissar. So she started kind of doing gigs when Sammy didn't do it. And then we started doing gigs. I was like, what would it be like to have them both? So we do both. And then we had two female singers and then keyboards. Razor, unfortunately, passed as well. And then so this, there's a real kind of big band out of Cincinnati called Foxy Shazam. Keyboard player was a guy named Sky White. And I'd seen him play a few times and they kind of fit what we were doing. So Sky started touring with me there too as well. So basically, the long story short, the band kept growing and growing and growing, which was awesome. You know, I love, love having a big band. And uh, so, yeah, so that's kind of, that became the bump assembly, essentially. Yeah, so now it's nice because when I go out, because I go out and do just solo gigs, literally just by myself, the stuff you saw me, that you see me doing on a lot of my socials when I'm live streaming. And so now we kind of have, you know, Freak Bass, and then there's Freak Bass and the bump assembly, depending on what I'm touring with. Yeah. Are you ever bored? <laughs> I don't know if I have enough time to be bored. Yeah, yeah. The boredom doesn't get a chance to sink in just because of the busyness of things right now. My schedule is insane, which is great. I'm going to try to push it as hard as I can for as long as I can, but I'm actually looking forward to that emotion at some point. <laughs> so let's talk about live streaming. When you started doing this, I follow you on TikTok, and it's always fun when you're thumbing through different videos. I know immediately it's freak bass, or sometimes I'll say things like, who is the zebra playing bass, or has the live button? Where did all that come from, and how has it developed? Because now, with things like TikTok and Shorts and YouTube, this is a really important part if you're trying to get your music out to the world. For sure. Live, I mean, this has become, you know, I mean, for the... Here, let me not jump ahead. Let's start where we're kind of started from. As obviously, like with every musician, when the pandemic hit, everything just obviously shut down. And we were all looking for different ways to stay connected with people. And I originally started doing a show on my Facebook Live called Saturday Night Chit Chat. You know, everybody I knew, I knew everybody was home stuck on Saturday. So I did this show called Saturday Night Chit Chat, kind of like what you're doing. I just have different musicians on and we just kind of talk how you been, you know, what have you been doing to keep yourself busy, blah, blah, blah. And that kind of started getting a little following. And I kept hearing about this platform called Twitch from a lot of my other friends, musician friends. My regret with Twitch is I wish I would have started it earlier during the stream. I was kind of on the tail end of the pandemic when I finally jumped into that. But it's a live streaming platform. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. That's all they do is live stream. That's not, that's their whole thing. And then started, of course, reading all these articles, you know, New York Times had this big piece about it, how big it was getting and everything. So I kind of went feet first into that and then started with live streaming. You know, the big thing is, is, once you kind of figure out what you're doing on there, you know, scheduling is so important. It's just like a TV show. So if you're on Tuesday, Thursdays, and Fridays at 9 p.m. Eastern time, whenever you decide it is, 
people expect when they turn on their computers or their phones or whatever that you're on that time just like they would if they're watching a TV show. So it becomes, and obviously the other thing that, you know, when you're live streaming, it's not like I'm just like turning the camera on and going. It's like you have to prep for whatever that show is. So that's a couple hours there too as well. So it kind of starts becoming, if you want to do it, in my opinion, like where there's entertainment value involved and also artistic value involved, it's very time consuming. My thing was, I was like, you know, I'm sitting in the studio all the time making beats, making grooves. What would it be like just to turn the camera on and see people, how I do that and I maybe involve the, just like a live show. And I would say the live streaming on Twitch and then now TikTok, which I'll talk about in just a second is definitely in terms of like the way you feel that adrenaline rush and, and that connection with the audience is as close to being in an audience as you can get without actually being in an audience. So zap ahead a few months, you know, I started kind of getting a nice little following on Twitch and uh, there's a guy that watched me on Twitch and he's like, you know, we're also doing live streaming over on TikTok too. You should like take about it. I was like, I didn't even know like, and I had a TikTok account and I would go there every once in a while, watch the crazy little funny dance videos. I'm like, I don't know what TikTok does not, you know, He's like, no, no, we're really going to start really doing a lot of stuff on there. And TikTok, like I started doing this, I was like, okay, I'll do like an hour here and there. And then it's the follow, it just started growing so quickly for me over, over there. A big, huge reason for that, obviously their user base is huge. Twitch is awesome. And I love Twitch and, and it's, it was a game changer for me, but you know, it's still, it's more of a niche kind of thing. Like my mom knows what TikTok is. She doesn't know what Twitch is, you know, yeah, Twitch like was a name. Even primarily, it was still mostly video games as streamers for Correct. Yeah. Correct. That's it. Exactly. They started like leaning into the music stuff more, which was nice. But uh, yeah, so I started doing TikTok and I would just do like an hour here, an hour there. And then I started getting a buzz in this management company. They're called Taboost, who is an agency that represent artists that are starting to make a little name themselves on Twitch. Just like a management, like if you had a band management for touring and stuff. They reached out to me and was like, we'd like to manage you. You're to, and I'm like, manage me? And like, yeah, we just handle, all we do is your TikTok. That's it, nothing else. So whether it be getting more people there or getting different promotional opportunities, whether it be inside of TikTok or outside with interviews or whatever, it's just related just to that platform. So now, long story short, Zap Ahead, I've only been actually streaming since, back, on TikTok that is, since back in, I think, Mar like early March. But now I'm streaming six days a week. I'm on there six days, Sunday through Friday. Don't my only day off is Saturday and it's 10 PM Eastern time, 7 PM Pacific time. And I'm on there two, three, four hours at a time. And we have this vibrant community who they've all gotten to be friends and connect with each other. So it's like this, it's really become this thing too. And I think part of it too, what, the one thing I think is really important with TikTok is for musicians too. I think the vertical aspect of it is such a huge thing yeah. because you know, where Twitch was, was, you know, it's obviously more like a YouTube thing where it's horizontal and you get to see all my toys in my studio, which was cool. But especially for me and like as frantic and like in your face as some of my stuff is, I think the fact that I'm literally enveloping your whole screen, you know, for better or worse, I'm sure there's a lot of trolls out there be like, yeah, let's get rid of this guy. But I think just the, like, it's just probably when you're, you know, everybody's doing this constantly on their phones and all of a sudden like, whoa, what's this like, you know, weird based music with this weird looking guy on here. I think that might, that's kind of what kind of hooked people initially is my guess, you know? You've got the helium balloons in the background, panda dolls. Yeah. Uh, the, you go quite kooky with the costumes, sometimes literally full on costumes. Who is that person? How much planning does that take? What are you thinking creatively? Like, what is the style you want people to feel when they see it? Because funk has one vibe to it. Improv has another vibe to it. 
you're creating this manga, Japanese, comic booky. There's a vibe going on here. Yeah. I mean, you just, I mean, you said it perfectly. I mean, it's, I, I think of it, I've always been, you know, when I got into music, I remember one of the first, you know, I mentioned Zap earlier about being that, that game changer moment for me in terms of like the music side. The visual side, when I was a little kid too, I remember being one, two in the morning and I was up probably way too late and like MTV or something was on and I was kind of half waking up sleep. And I remember seeing Ashes to Ashes by David Bowie on and that video. And, and so, and I got obsessed with Bowie too. And it was just a musical and a visual. And I didn't really even equate that they were like separate things. I wasn't like, oh, okay, so you do visual stuff. Some people do visual stuff. Some people do music. I just kind of thought it was all one thing, you know, and especially because, because of people like David Bowie. And then, you know, a couple years later, like David Byrne, from Talking Heads. And obviously yeah. the, P, the P-Funk stuff speaks for itself in terms of that stuff. And I'm a huge superhero nut too. On top of that, you can see probably there's bobbleheads and stuff everywhere around here. So to me, it all kind of feels like it's all one thing. And then on top of that, my mom, um, my father was a fireman and he would be, you know, the, uh, when you're a fireman, you, you work 24 hours and you're off 48 hours. And so we, when I was real, real little, she would, you know, she was all into like the old Judy, she's not even from that generation, but she was all kind of old Judy Garland movies and all those early showbiz type movies. So I'd be sitting there watching all those with her. And I think between that and the music, it just kind of all melted into kind of one thing. And I've always thought of it, music and visual all as one thing. It's, I don't think of it as two separate things, you know? But you're walking down the street, you see a zebra unicorn costume. Is that you thinking, that would be fun on the show? Or you proactively, I should dress like a zebra. What's going on there? I think there's a little proactive stuff about it too as well. I mean, I'm always, you know, like with the zebra thing, you know, um, I had the idea, there's an outfit I had that kind of had a zebra vibe to it. And I was like, you know, let's don't do this 80%. Let's go 100%. Let's not just wear the zebra outfit. Let's actually be a zebra, you know? So I went and looked at some different masks and I found this mask and it was so tripped out looking. You yeah, it's true. It, like, yeah. So yeah, especially the, mostly the eyes, it's like, cause it, it's like really we weird looking like when you, when you're, when you're wearing it and it kind of sucks you in. And, uh, and I knew getting back to the vertical thing, I knew like with it being that up in your, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so <laughs> just kind of went all in with it, you know? I love it. Well, the other thing that's interesting about video is I was reading about you and you had a massive viral hit with the Notre Dame project, We Are ND. That must have been something also in your brain about, well, hold on, there's like this whole other world of what viral means and what success can look like. We think it's Grammys or album sales, video views, followers, community. But you were exposed to that almost over a decade ago with this project. And I still hear from stuff about that today. That was... Oh man, that was not a story. Let, let it was, the story because it's a crazy story. It, it's crazy. And, and it's still so, I mean, talk about getting some thick skin really freaking fast. Right. So, you know, I had done a song for the Cincinnati Reds called Reds fan. And it, and it, you know, in this area, it was ended up kind of being a thing where they actually still play Reds fan even to today down at the ballpark at the end of the games. And, and I wanted to write a song that didn't have a, wasn't dated. I didn't name any players in and it was just tough. So I knew, so it would have a, you know, be able to stay in the test of time type thing. So anyway, so one of the guys that was from this area knew about that song and he is the video director at Notre Dame University. 
he said, man, I love that Reds fan song. Can we do something similar to Notre Dame? Well, you know, Notre Dame is obviously, it's like this historic school, you know, and it's like, you know, it doesn't matter what part of this, especially in the Midwest, which is where I'm from, but like, I'm sure anywhere nationally, it's such a big thing. I was like, sure. Yeah, I'd love to do that. You know, I was really excited about it. This is really cool. And I asked a bunch of, because I felt, I'll be honest with you, I felt really kind of weird about it at first because I am a Notre Dame fan. But I'm not from that. I didn't go to that school. You know, I'm from Cincinnati. I'm not from South Bend, Indiana, obviously. I talked to actually some of my friends actually were like sports casters in the sports industry here in Cincinnati. I was like, you know, what do you think? Is that going to be like weird me doing it? You know, and they're like, just you should just do it. You know, that's a they're a historical school, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So I was like, all right, all right. So, you know, they spent, you know, had a big production budget and we did the song and song came out. Well, I guess Notre Dame, not only did they put the song on their sports site, but they put it on the freaking front page of the Notre Dame University. Like you go to not just Notre Dame sports, like Notre Dame, type that in for the first day or two, it was on their thing. And oh, it was a firestorm. So the young people dug, I mean, like all like, you know, all the, Younger people that, that were into it, they loved it and they were into it and everything was cool. So like the first few hours, like, oh, this is cool. Everybody's really digging it. And so it's taken off. But more the old school people were like, who is this guy? You know, and it's like, and I get it, you know, because like, you know, I think about being a Reds fan. If someone like the equivalent of me came in there and did this, I'd be like, who is this? You know, you're talking, you know, I'm just like, I know what's the deal, you know, type thing. So I get it. Then they ended up having me on these different radio shows, like in both na national sports radio shows. And it became this whole, whole thing. Who's this crazy guy with the weird looking bass and the blonde hair and looking just weird doing this funk song about Notre Dame. There were different players from the school coming out and like, you know, we love this song. And then like the, there'd be like a, more of the traditional alumni people like this is, you know, they had like these like Facebook. This is back when, you know, Facebook was, but this was 2010. So Facebook was, there was no TikTok or no, YouTube was kind of even earlier in that day. But yeah, it was, it was such a, and it's funny because the Atlantic, which is a big, you know, sports, you know, national pro, they actually just, I think it was this last year. And they did kind of did like a follow-up like 10 years later, yeah. whatever it was. And we talked about all this kind of stuff, but you know, it really, really, the, the first two days were just crazy or like the first week or two were just insane. You live a, you know, I don't regret it. I mean, I was like, my intentions were, were pure. I love, still love Notre Dame today. I still, you know, I still scoreboard watch with them all the time. And it's an incredible university, as we know, in this crazy world of the internet, there's going to be as many people that may love what you're doing. You're going to have that exact opposite side to it as well. So it really helped me as crazy as it was to go through at the time. It was very good music life lesson thing for me too, as well. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about experimentation being weird, trying different things. You talked about effects. You talked about people who've influenced you. I know that you put together a double neck bass. You're really open to trying different things. I think that's why you probably have the success you're having on TikTok because that's one of the magnets to it when someone's sure. trying something. Where does that come from and how does that evolve as you get older? Because as we get older, we tend to slide a little bit into nostalgia or think that this is what people expect of me and we fall into our own form. How do you stay open to experimenting on every level, hardware, gear, pedals, music, the physical part of it? Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a great question. I think all, a lot of it has to do with a lot of my heroes, musical heroes, the ones that we mentioned Bowie and like, let's think about George Clinton. I mean, you go to a George Clinton concert or Bootsy show when Bootsy was still touring and 
it's people from, yeah, you got the old school funk people there, but there's like, you know, hippie kids that are like 15, 16, 17 years old and a big part of the audience too. And I think that's because the idea of always experimenting with music, you know, like Bootsy, for instance, did the Praxis album with Buckethead and you listen to that album, it sounds like when it came out last week or it hasn't even released yet. It still sounds brand new, but so, so ahead of its time. I think that's a reason why a lot of artists can have a long, if, if, especially if they make that part of their branding, George, obviously George Clinton and, and Bowie and David Byrne, he's obviously always evolving too, as an artist, he could have just done the, go out and do the talking heads, greatest hits tour. And, and he's in a whole nother world right now doing utopia on, you yeah, know, Broadway, on Broadway stuff. Yeah. yeah. Those have always been the artists that I've always been, that I've always gravitated towards and fascinated by. So. That's why I'm always trying to push the envelope as, as much as I can using effects and trying different things that might be a little bit outside of the norm. One thing that I always thought was interesting and I was like, I'm not sure how do I bridge these two gaps is like, I love teaching as much as I love performing. I love teaching. And generally when you see like a music person, like a teaching type person, they're kind of like this type of person, like they're the music teacher type person. And then there's the performer person. But a lot of times you don't necessarily have kind of both or like if i'm the performer person i might tap down when i do performance to bridge and it's like why can't we just be all of those things you know and it's like that's going to help so even like on my tiktok as much as there's videos me going crazy with zebra outfits on i'm also doing videos on how to do double thumb technique and, yeah. and thump and pluck and stuff like that so bridge this whole world together and i think that's what i think is cool about especially online, the online world right now is it is so wide open in terms of with the content creation, you can kind of be and do anything right now. There's not these parameters like, oh, you have to be, you have to be a teacher. You have to be before you can do these both things together. And that's, that's the, the world we're in, which I think is really exciting. Dan, you're so great and natural at it that it helps. And oh, it helps you. people who struggle with being on screen isn't easy and, and playing isn't easy. And having those skills combined, I think often musicians, in particular bass players, take those skills for granted. I'd be remiss if we didn't talk before leaving about the backstage supercast only because I'm a massive comic book collector and nerd. So oh, nice. It's going to be, it's a hard world where you have bass players and similar passions and music artists and then also comic books. So I guess I'd ask you, what's in your bin? What's in your weekly pull list? What do you like for? Real quickly, I'm a Joker fanatic. You can, you can, yeah, they're every, everywhere. Yeah, I am. It's pretty bad. I'm like pretty obsessed with the whole superhero, especially on the film side of stuff. Okay. Ever since I was a kid, I've always been into the superhero thing, whether comics or movies and talking about our, I, Bootsy. I remember when I saw Bootsy, the very first time I ever saw Bootsy was my mom brought me downtown to a store downtown. It was like a CD store. And there was this huge, I was probably like three or four and this huge cardboard cutout. A Bootsy standing there, like he looked again, like 10 feet tall and he looked like a freaking super. I didn't know he was a bass player. I didn't know who he was. It was just like a superhero looking guy standing there. So it was all kind of like forming in my brain kind of at the same time. But that whole genre obviously is just, um, you know, that can be, that is some friends of mine, that is their whole life. Just like I do music full time. They do, you know, podcasts and their, their whole world is, is, is revolved around reviewing movies and stuff like that. Well, I've been lucky enough to meet some friends that have pulled me into that world a little bit. So I was doing some podcasting, reviewing movies, superhero, CBM type type movies and stuff like that. So it's a huge, huge passion of mine. I've been to a few of the comic cons. I haven't been to the San Diego one yet. I would do want to go to that one. one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, for sure. But I've been to some smaller ones around the country and, and, uh, yeah, I'm like the biggest freaking geek in the world. Like, you know, it's total. Yeah. Love it. Yeah. It's funny too. Like I find that as I get older too, the pull of nostalgia is real. There's no doubt. Like I, mean, I sure. spent the weekend with Rob Trujillo and Metallica and there's so much nostalgia there for me because I was there at the beginning and saw the whole evolution, knew him from suicidal tendencies. Yeah. And when it comes to comic books too, even when I look at what's coming out on Wednesday, new comic book day, I find myself looking at some of these covers and immediately feeling this pull of, I don't even know where the storyline is at, but I got to pick that up. Yeah. There's a tremendous creative thing going on there that I think is so diminished by people because think about these characters and how many decades they've been out. And every single month, there's new characters, new storylines, and they got to keep it going. Like if no one buys it, it dies. I think it's one of those art forms that is so neglected in terms of being respected by people. And it makes me crazy because if you go back and just look at what Stan Lee created or the early days of Marvel or DC and how a lot of even what they made up became actual technology. It's like, yeah, like there's crazy stories there. Yeah, it really is. Yeah, it's it's a. Uh... So let me ask you, uh, it's another card part. Are you more DC or Marvel? So it's interesting. I really fell in the middle for a long time, but more yeah. DC. Yeah. I was really enamored with the whole Batman turning into Teen Titans, into Nightwing. Like yeah. I always thought that vigilante type of thing was very cool. But again, because of just when it started, like I was really there when comic book stores opened in the early 80s. Yeah, yeah. That it's hard not to think of things like Daredevil and X-Men and all of those titles. Sure. But I would lean more DC, although DC has let me down so severely in terms of movies that it leans me back to Marvel. Lately, I find myself really into the independence. Mm, uh, interesting. And writers and artists like Ed Brubaker, who did Criminal... Okay. Like, almost like a film noir of comic books. There's yeah. all these stories that are being told that you realize when you read them, you just can't get these stories any other way. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm more of a DC person. I mean, I love okay. Marvel too as well. And actually, it's funny you bring Daredevil. In the Marvel world, Daredevil was my favorite Marvel character. Yeah, I'm correct. crossing my fingers about this. I love the, the Netflix series. Yeah, yeah. And I'm hoping that they don't Disneyfy it too much, you know, and still keep it edgy like the, the Marvel series was. But yeah, definitely more. I'm definitely more of a DC person. And I'm ex very excited to see what James Gunn's going to do with this too. Yeah. As well, I love James Gunn. The last Gunn, Flash you know. was good. I mean, the last Flash movie gave me some hope. I thought yeah. that, you know, the Snyder remix on Justice League, I could have gone either way on that. I wasn't sure. I am as a fan, which I understand there's a marketing side of it. I'm just getting tired of the fact that it's always the origin story. Right. And right. that's where I think X-Men, they did it so well with First Class and all these other extensions that. They just got beyond constantly retelling the origin story. It's like enough, you know? Right, right. Well, it sounds like Gunn, at least in terms of Superman goes, like yeah. legacy, he's going to, it's like, the, you know, he's bringing superheroes are already there. Like they're already on our planet. So he's not going to do just another retelling of Superman 78 or whatever, you know? And if you love DC, I mean, I re a lot of people didn't like it. I thought the death metal series was great and so cool and so different. And that, that to me also was so creative. I love Have it. you seen the documentary on Max yet on DC? I have not. Nah, I think it's, I forget what it's called. Just look up DC documentary. I can't think of the okay. name of it, but it just came out like just two oh, weeks ago. Yes. I, I think I just, yeah, yeah. Which, yeah. It's, it goes through all the characters, Wonder Woman, Batman. Yeah. It's kind of, and yeah. also all the writers and the whole yeah. history of everything. And Jim Lee and everything. Yeah. 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 Jim Lee's a big, big so character good. on there. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the time, Freak Base. It was so cool to connect and thank you for doing this. What I'd love for you to do is take a moment, let people know what you're currently working on, what they can check out, where to find you on TikTok, all that good stuff. 
Yeah. So, you know, kind of my main, as I mentioned earlier in the interview, my main place you can find me every single night of the week. That's 10 p.m. Eastern time, 7 p.m. Pacific time is on TikTok. And that's just at FreakBass, F-R-E-E-K-B-A-S-S on there all the time. YouTube channel, which is FreakBass official. All my other socials are all FreakBass. Twitter, or I mean X, it's X now. I always forget threads, Instagram, Facebook, all freak base. And, um, you know, if I'm not doing that, I'm on the road jumping around. And that's always, you can find that out at freakbase.com, the website. Well, thanks so much for your time. Yes. Thank you so much for having me, Mitch. And, and, uh, you know, thanks again for having me on. Mm-hmm.